Well, I'd like us to start the message this morning by anchoring ourselves to a powerful and perhaps familiar truth from God's Word on the topic of God's Word. So uh, if you're following, uh, what, what we're going to do here in just a moment is read a passage from Scripture, from God's Word, where the Word is talking about itself. Now, this is very foundational for us as the people of God. Perhaps this is a familiar verse that you're aware of. I'm going to uh, encourage you to read along one more time as you see it on the screen. This is home base for us as the people of God. Our final authority is in the Word of God. Would you read with me? 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You believe that, church? What a gift God has given us in His holy word. Every word of Scripture is from Almighty God, breathed out by Him. I love how Peter says it in one of his letters, as, as the writers of Scripture are carried along by the Spirit, we have this gift from the throne room of God to us as His people. And, and I think this understanding, this baseline understanding that God's Word is true, it's eternal, it's divine, is the perfect place for us to start. Because we're beginning a new journey this morning. A journey through the book of Esther. So, anchored to the truth of 2 Timothy 3, we, we know that Esther, just like every book in Scripture, is a divine gift. That every word given to us is by God Himself from the book of Esther. And yet, one of the, I'll call it striking things that we find as we make our way through this book together is that the name of God is not ever mentioned in the book of Esther. Like, not even once. So, uh, what's up with that? Why in the world would God give us a book inspired by His Spirit, a book where He's not even mentioned? In fact, at first glance at the book of Esther, you may be tempted to wonder whether God is absent from this story altogether. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. We're going to see as the events of Esther begin to unfold in the coming weeks that God is very much at work. But, but I don't want you to miss the obvious point before we begin here today, the, the human element, because I think there's some application for us here today in 2022. Here's, here's the idea. Sometimes I think we can struggle with the invisibility of God. With the unseen nature of, of God. Don't we wrestle with that sometimes? I think one biblical commentator captures this tension that we feel well. He's actually a former professor at Grove City College just to the north of us. His name is Ian Duguid, and he writes this about God's unseen nature. He says, we do, we we struggle with the invisibility of God. The God who can part the Red Sea and, and raise the dead. Does not choose to exercise that same power very often in our experience. We struggle when the goals and dreams we've had for our lives are trampled underfoot by circumstances. Even though perhaps they were good and godly dreams. And that... God could easily have brought them to fruition. Can you relate to that? I know I can. Have you ever asked yourself, why does God seem so distant? Why does he not appear to answer or even respond, for that matter, to my, my cries for help? Well, the book of Esther is going to speak volumes to us because although God's name is absent... Although his form is unseen in this book, God himself is certainly not. And even when he's unseen, God's sovereign hand is still very much 
at work. He's the dominating force in the book, as we'll see over the, the coming weeks. We just see traces of his fingerprints writ large through Esther. And so let me invite you, if you haven't already, to turn there to the Old Testament book of Esther. If you open your Bible about halfway through, you're probably going to hit the Psalms or the Proverbs. And, and right before the book of Psalms comes the book of Job. Flip uh, one buck earlier from Job and you've arrived at Esther. The book of Esther. As you're finding your way there, and I'd encourage you to be there, we're going to read a big chunk of the beginning of the book together today. I'm going to ask two basic questions, just two simple framing questions to help us understand the context of this unique and beautiful passage of Scripture before us. Two questions. The first question, where are we? And the next question, what time is it? These are good questions to ask, by the way, when you're uh, sitting with the, your Bible open on your lap. Where are we and what time is it? Where are we in the, the course of redemptive history? Because when you know where you're nestled in relationship to God and the story that he's unfolding before us, you can start to make sense of what, what you do and, and where you go from there. So, so the events of Esther take place after the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem, has been destroyed, it's been pillaged, and its people taken into exile. In fact, this book, Esther, is written a little over a hundred years after the deportation and exile of God's people, the Jews, into a foreign land. They were they were sinning grievously before God, and he sent them prophet after prophet to say, repent, turn, follow me. And God's people persisted in their selfish sinfulness. God eventually does send them into exile. So I want you to see this as we're approaching the, the book of Esther here together. They're no longer in the promised land. They're no longer in Kansas anymore, Toto. This is a foreign pagan land that we're reading about here. And, and at first, God's people are, are taken away by the Babylonians. Mighty King Nebuchadnezzar lays waste to, to Jerusalem and carries off his people. But, but some time has elapsed since then, and mighty Babylon has fallen to the Medo-Persian Empire. And so uh, here we find ourselves in, in ancient Persia. Now, keep in mind, before we start reading here, God said this would happen. If you've been reading the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and many faithful Jews would have known these well, God prophesied through the, the mouth of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29, in fact, that after 70 years in captivity, God would graciously make a way for his people to return to the promised land, to worship him once again as they ought to to do. So keep a mental bookmark there. God's people in exile. Actually, um, that 70 years has passed by the time uh, Esther is being written. These events are unfolding. So if you remember uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, which by the way are the books right before Esther, this book, Esther, is set in the same time period, same general time period as those prophets. So, so just helping you to, to gauge what time it is in redemptive history. And this is more than just history trivia. This stuff's going to make a difference when we start to unpack and interpret where we are and how we apply these truths, these circumstances to our lives. So remember that. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, exile. That's where we are. And the book begins, Esther chapter 1, at the very top, as it were, by introducing us to the supreme ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. Would you read with me in Esther 1, verses 1 and 2, we'll get a taste for who's in charge. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. All right, so we're getting an orientation here. We're talking about the king, 
of this empire, this king, uh, his name's a mouthful, it's Ahasuerus. We recently had a baby, and we were discussing boys' names and girls' names. My wife and I like to, to joke with our kids, if it's a boy, how about Ahasuerus? The kids were mortified. Um, anyway, Ahasuerus. Now, some of your translations, as you're reading, may say a different name. Some of your translations actually may read King Xerxes. Now, it's the same guy. Xerxes is simply just the Greek translation of that Hebrew name. And, and so we're, we're talking about the same guy. Xerxes, Ahasuerus, same king. And he's got a massive empire. Did you read this? Let me, let me show you. If you're a visual uh, learner, let me just show you the map here of his rule. If you can see just, just from a broad swath. And I'm colorblind, but the darker color, whatever that happens to be in the middle, is the Medo-Persian Empire at the time that Esther was written. I, I got a little arrow here where you can see the capital city, or at least one of them, the citadel of Susa, is highlighted. That's, that's where Esther is. That's where King Ahasuerus, at this point in the story, is, is based from Ethiopia to India, at least by the ancient designations of those regions. This is a mind-bogglingly big empire. 127 provinces, more than 2.9 million square miles of land spanning across three continents. Suffice it to say, King Ahasuerus is a pretty big deal. And he's going to be immediately, or we're going to be immediately confronted with an overwhelming display of this king's wealth and power as we continue to read. Follow along with me. Pick it up in verse 3. King Ahasuerus, in those days, or sorry, verse 3. In the third year of his, King Ahasuerus' reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. That's a lot of days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. This guy's loaded, isn't he? Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to this edict, verse 8. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Whew. So, this is next level, right? I mean, would you agree with me? I, I would be willing to wager that none of you here have attended a party quite like this before. 180 days for crying out loud. You know how long that is? That's almost six months. And then he tops off this, this crazy festival, this celebration with seven special days at the very end at the zenith of this festival. Another week-long feast for everyone great and small in the entire city of Susa, the, the, the capital, the, the citadel. Now, quick historical guide, if you want to geek out with me for a half minute. Um, we, we can't be sure, but some scholars think that this is quite possibly this massive party that King Ahasuerus is hosting for like six months. It's quite possibly what he's doing. Note that he invited his uh, armies and his nobles and governors, the, the officials, the high-ranking officials there. Uh, it's possible that he's actually throwing this big soiree in preparation as he's planning for a massive invasion of Greece. So right off to the, uh, to the west here of our map, you see the empires sort of shared a, a border if you, if you keep on going in that direction. And, uh, and so he's planning his invasion for, for, for Greece quite possibly. Now, if you're a student of history, you know, 
and doesn't really end well for Persia and for, uh, and for King Ahasuerus. But here, here's the point. Snapping back to the, the book with me here. The point is that right in the middle of this crazy account of the king's opulence, when he is flexing, as it were, to show everyone his wealth and his power, we're introduced to the next character in the book, who is Queen Vashti. Let's read about the queen and what happens in verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10 of the book of Esther. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with, with wine, he commanded Mahuman and Biztha and Harbona, Bigtha, Abgatha, and Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the, queen, the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, we'll just keep reading to the end of the segment here. The king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina and Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, Azuerus asked, what's to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimukin said in the presence of the king and his officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. We'll see that echo throughout the book. The, the laws of the, Mersians, uh, the Persians and the Medes, once set into effect as a royal edict, cannot be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Verse 20. So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. Whew. Man alive. There's a lot there. So get this. King Ahasuerus controls all of this. Right? Remember 127 provinces. Land across the known world. He's probably the most powerful man. Arguably on the planet at the time. He controls all that. But he can't control everything. Can he? Now I was counseled to say. Not to say that he can't control his wife. That's a bad idea. But the, the, the point is this. The point is this. No matter how much power, no matter how much wealth, no matter how much prestige you have, there is always going to be some sand between the sheets. Isn't that right? We were made for communion with God. And no matter how high you have it on this side of the sun, there, there's just going to be heartache. There's going to be pain. You're never going to find soul satisfaction outside of the one who made you. The king flexing in all his might and power. Resplendent in glory and wealth commands Queen Vashti and she does not come. This, of course, is an affront to his sovereignty and certainly a hit to his pride. So... 
All kinds of ink. Some of you have been waiting for me to get here. All kinds of ink has been spilled as to why Queen Vashti refuses to come. Some indeed take this alcohol-induced request for her to come. Look at verse 11. In her crown to mean only her crown. But notice, although there's a lot of writing and speculation as to why Queen Vashti says no, we can spend a lot of time on that. I, I'm not sure that's the direction that Scripture points us to. Notice there's, there's just no evidence for those sorts of theories, although possibly it could be true. It's just not here in the text, is it? So that's not the point. Why Queen Vashti didn't come is just simply not the point. The point is that the path has been paved in the largest, most powerful empire in the known world for a new queen. A new queen that we're about to get introduced to here in chapter 2. So let's, let's dive in. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated... He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. <clears throat> then, excuse me, the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So let's make sure we're all tracking here. What, what we have here is an empire-wide search for the most beautiful girls alive. And suffice it to say, this Miss Persia competition is legit. I, again, I'm keeping the map up here. Remember, this is a lot of girls. This is a lot of land. This is a big search. 127 provinces. Most uh, commentators estimate the population in the empire at the time would have been somewhere to the tune of 50 million people. But before we see who wears this crown, who's the fairest of them all, we're introduced to another character in the story. Enter stage right, Mordecai the Jew. Let's read. Esther 2, beginning in verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem along with the captives, uh, carried away with King Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that's her Jewish name, by the way. Hadassah means myrtle. That is Esther. Esther is her Persian name. It means star. It's, it's perhaps a shortened form of the Persian word for the name Ishtar, a pagan god. He was bringing up this girl, who the book's named after, Hadassah, will, will know her heretofore as Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So, Mordecai has raised Esther. He loves her like a daughter. And, and I want you to notice something. This is interesting. We're right in the, mat, uh, in the middle of an empire-wide beauty pageant, right? There's all of this money, all of this pageantry being, uh, being just expended everywhere. And, and as we are uh, interested in looking into who becomes queen, there's this su little side note, not only about Mordecai, who's raising the queen uh, to be, as we'll find out, but... We find a really interesting note here in verse 5. Look, look with me. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Scripture very intentionally, albeit curiously, tells us about the lineage of Mordecai. Right, so if you're like following along, how many of you are like, who cares? Right? Who cares who this guy is, who his father is? What's Mordecai have to do with it other than the fact that he raised her? Well, hang on now. Not today, but... 
Next week, we're going to see that the lineage, the family line of Mordecai is a very big deal. So you may want to make a little star, a little note here by chapter 2, verse 5. Remember this, this is uh, the, the next just simple idea that will come to bear later in the book. Mordecai is a Jew. He's of the people of God from the tribe of Benjamin. And he's quite pedigreed, by the way. Not only is he descended from the line of Benjamin, he's from the line of Kish. Which, if you've been reading through your Old Testament, may ring a bell. Kish is the same line that King Saul comes from. So follow that away later. We'll need it next week. Mordecai from the line of Saul and the family of Kish. All right. Now, Esther's in Mordecai's care when she is selected, and he gives her one very solemn command as she heads off to the Miss Persia competition. Let's check it out. We'll keep reading in verse 8. Verse 8 of chapter 2. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, And many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai. Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in the front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Did you catch Mordecai's command? Verse 10, let's just take a peek here. This is a big deal. We find about it almost by happenstance as the narrator is working through the book here. Esther had not made known, verse 10, her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Hey, before you go, Esther, whatever you do, don't tell them your identity. Don't tell them, Esther, that we're part of the people of God. I hope you're scratching your theological brain saying, why? Well, that's, uh, that'll be coming to fruition here soon. Let's just keep reading. Now, um, as the pageant's underway here, which is really no pageant as we would see it, as the search for a queen is, is well underway, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that only 400 women, 400 of all those millions throughout that huge swath of land made the cut. This is a pretty elite group. Of course, Esther is one of them, as we've seen. Now, let's see how the final round of the Miss Persia contest concludes. We're just going to read to the end of our passage today from verse 12 to 18, and then we'll work our way back and bring some of this together to to connect the dots. Verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since This was the regular period of their beautifying. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Verse 14. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return not to the same place. She would return to the second harem in custody of Shahazgaz, the, how do we say that? the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Verse 16, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. 
The king gave a great feast for all his officials in service. It was Esther's feast and also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So, that's a lot. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. Who gets the crown? Well, of course, we know that everyone in the entire empire, this vast domain, just as you'd expect, the exiled orphan Jewish girl gets the crown, right? Probably just a coincidence, though. I want us to stop for a moment and pull up for air, because at this point in the story, it could be easy to start to build a very romantic poetic narrative to look at what's happening with rose-colored theological glasses and with grace i want to encourage you to resist the urge to make that very common mistake to make this story the story of esther and some sort of biblical cinderella story friends that is uh that is not what's going on here and we can't whitewash this story first it's it's not faithful to the lord uh, to treat his word that way and 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 secondly when we do when we whitewash the story we miss the entire point that god is leading us to after all please friends, please don't miss this esther and mordecai are not the heroes of this story just not. Yet, yes, the book's called Esther. And yes, I don't want to take anything away of the amazing ways in which God uses them to work redemption for his people. But the theme of this book, the theological thrust of this book is not be like Esther. She's not the hero. God is the hero. And I want to be gentle and respectful, but I want to show you, I think, biblically, at least three ways that we don't want to follow their example, at least not here early in the book. Let's do this quickly. I'm not going to belabor the point. First thing that we see, which should be waving some, some flags in your heart, in your head, is, is that Esther and Mordecai have rejected God's plan to return to the promised land. Friends, this is, this is a big deal. This is a prophecy of God. Jeremiah 29.11. Who knows that verse? It's like the most famous verse in the whole Old Testament. Jeremiah 29. Some of you, that's, that's your life verse. Jeremiah 29.11. Some of you are saying it. For I know the plans that I have for you. The plans to, to prosper you, not to harm you. To give you a hope and a future, right? Right? You know what comes before Jeremiah 29.11? Well, it's, it's Jeremiah 29.10. And Jeremiah 29.10 makes it clear that the prophecy that follows to give, God, give God's people a hope and a future is not about God blessing your job. It's not about that. Not about... God providing for your family. God helping you to achieve your God-given potential. That's not what Jeremiah 29.11 is about. Let me read it for you. You can, go, you can go check me. You can go fact check me. Jeremiah, I'm just going to read the Bible. Jeremiah 29.10. God's speaking to his people through the mouth of his prophet. And he says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill... To you, my promise, and bring you back to this place. What's God saying? Israel, you have sinned. And you're going to be punished grievously. But I'm not done with you, my people. Because of my great love. Not because of your track record. Because of my covenant love for you. Because my promises will stand eternal. Because I'm going to raise up a seed from the woman to crush the head of the serpent through you. Because Abraham, you will have as many children as the stars in the sky. I'm not done with you, Israel. 
And after 70 years in captivity, I'm going to open the door back again. I'm going to make a way. And, and you need to come back to me. Come back to the promised land. I'm, I'm going to read you Jeremiah 29, 11 in that context. After 70 years, I'm going to bring you back to my land. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. What plans? Plans to bring the people of God back to the promised land. Those are the plans. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you future and a hope. All right. What's the point? The point is that God's people did just as God provided, just as God prophesied, as he predicted through the mouth of his prophet Jeremiah. God's, God's people did return to the land. And it's amazing. You know where you can read about it? Just flip to the left. Ezra and Nehemiah. Happening about the same time as what's going on in the book of Esther, by the way. What do God's faithful people do? Well, they obey his word. And they go back. What do Esther and Mordecai do? Well, you know, things have gotten pretty comfortable in Persia. Those Babylonians are out of the way. After all, this is where our family is. This is where, for generations, we've, we've set up shop. And you see what's happening? Way more people in Judah, and the people of Israel, the Jews. Way, way more people stayed. They nestled down in the world. They, got, they were getting too comfortable in their pagan environment. And they rejected God's plan to return, to set up the temple again, to rebuild the walls, to be a shining light to the nations in Jerusalem. Now, we could beat that drum for a long time. We've got to move on. But perhaps this has some application for our lives today in 2022. Because we still, church are the set-apart people of God. We still, as has always been the plan, are meant to live in the world and not of the world. So I'm just going to ask you the question as we look at a very comfortable Esther and Mordecai. Are you getting too comfortable in the world? I mean, you don't have the edict like Esther did, like Mordecai did, to go move to Jerusalem. But... But perhaps you've settled into Persia a little too comfortably. Perhaps you've taken your eyes off the prize and your focus has been building good life for yourself rather than pursuing the Lord with your time and your talents and your treasures. Are you getting a little too comfortable? Let's, let's continue. This second way, I think, in which we don't want to follow Esther's example, we don't want to follow the example of Mordecai, is that Esther and Mordecai chose to hide their true identity. See that? To hide their true identity as the people of God in order to blend in with the world around them. Now, we made a note of this. Remember chapter 2, verse 10? That's not it yet. You guys can back that one up. I'm, I'm spoiling the next point. Chapter 2, verse 10. Psst, Esther, whatever you do, don't tell them who you are. Don't tell them that you're a Jew. Don't tell them that you're part of the set-apart people of God. The one true God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It'll just be easier for you, Esther, Now again, we could spend a lot of time on this point. I'm just going to ask an application question and we're going to move on. Is this a temptation for you? I think it's a temptation for all of us with skin on. The temptation to want to blend in with the world. Not to stand out as a, as a beacon of light. To, to hide our light as it were under a bushel basket. Why? Well, because you just get along better that way. All the eye rolls and the, and the comments and the, the family being ostracized. It can be easy for us as the people of God to hide our true identity. I wonder, 
Do the people at your workplace know that you love Jesus? I'm not asking you to be obnoxious. There's enough of that going around. But is there something different about you? Does your family see it? Do people look at you and see the different way that you order your life? That you carry your priorities? Do they see there's something different about you? Or is it just easier? Don't, don't tell them about your true identity. You just get along better that way. Don't follow the example of Esther, of Mordecai, in this, in this way. Now, God's going to use them, right? Don't, throw, don't discard them, just like you and me. They make all kinds of mistakes. God's not done. I got one more thing, and this is perhaps the most glaring. Esther, let's zero in on this beautiful queen. Esther participates in an exceedingly immoral and compromising relationship with a pagan king. Let me put it another way. Esther has blatantly acted against the clear commandments of God. Look with me, if you will. This is worth noting. Chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. A night with the king. How magical. She goes in. She goes in. Look at the wording. A virgin, and she spends an evening with the king, and in the morning, she comes out a what? A concubine. Totally different harem for that, isn't there? Now, I'm just saying, they probably weren't playing Scrabble. I mean, is that fair? I don't want to be... Irreverent, but you know exactly what's going on here with the king. As he's flexing his power, as he's bringing virgin after virgin in, as he's building up his harem. We know exactly what was going on as Esther entered a virgin and left a concubine. By the way, just a quick aside, none of us are in the King Ahasuerus category, right? He's like a one percenter, right? Like a, he's, pretty, he's pretty high up there. But it's interesting to note that human nature hadn't changed a whole lot over the years, has it? You know, in our world today, this is a pretty similar model to the way that we find husbands and wives. Pretty popular. Step one, use everything you got, power, money, looks, personality, to muster up as many impressive suitors around you as you can. Step number two, kick the tires, which almost always involves sleeping with them. Step number three, settle on the one that pleases you the most. You don't have, I don't have the, the power or the resources at our disposal to do what King Ahasuerus did. But if you look in micro form, isn't that what's happening all around us? The method hasn't changed a lot because our sin nature has not changed one ounce. And yet, I know this is hard. I know this is, this is the Bible, Okay. It's not whitewashing these truths. It's not hiding them from us. I want us to see that in the midst of such debauchery, in the midst of such sin and brokenness, God is still at work. God behind the scenes is using all things for His glory and for ultimately the good of His people. He's not done. Now, not only, friends, it's just, if, you, if you haven't reached this place, I'm just going to, Lord willing, help you connect the dots. My point is, not only has King Ahasuerus sinned, Esther sinned. Esther not only engages with sexual, in sexual sin with King Ahasuerus outside of marriage, she marries a pagan king, which is a blatant violation to the Mosaic law. Remember, 
Ezra and Nehemiah, right, who have obeyed God, who are back living in the promised land. They're, they've got a whole lot to say about marrying those outside the family of God, do they not? Same time period. What do we see happening in Esther? Some of you are objecting in your minds. Wait, 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 Zeb. Come on. She didn't have a choice. She would have been killed if she resisted the king. Perhaps. Yes. Question. Does the Bible encourage obedience only when it's safe? Doesn't God sometimes call his people to give their very lives out of commitment to him? I mean, read, you read Daniel, right? The book of Daniel. Sounds awfully familiar. Pagan king. Don't pray to anybody but this pagan king or you'll die. How about Daniel's buddies, right? The three. Bow down. And though it cost them their lives and they knew it, they weren't, they weren't going to bow. I know it's hard, friends. God's people don't obey him only when it's safe. So, how many of you here were expecting a beautiful story and you're feeling a bit depressed right now? It's okay. The beginning of the book of Esther, it's hard. And all scripture is breathed out by God. God means this for you and for me. And I think if your takeaway is... Be an Esther. Then this is a pretty depressing start. Because she's not setting a very good example. Would you agree? But there's really good news. And I'll end with this. The takeaway of the book of Esther is not supposed to be. Be like Esther. It's just not. Esther's not the hero. Remember, here's the good news. And friends, this is better. This is a better story than you think it is. This is really good news. The point of Esther. And here's my last one for you. Sneak peek a minute ago. Here's, here's the point of the book of Esther. It's not be like her. The point of the book of Esther is marvel at the grace of God. The God who can and does use sinful, broken, disobedient, compromised people to accomplish amazing things. You see, God's not just sovereign over the good stuff. We uh, write Romans 8.28 on coffee cup verses. You know, that God uses all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his prayer. That's beautiful. All things. Like the hard stuff too. God's sovereign over that. Like the dark stuff in your closet. Like the shame you've been carrying. Like your disappointment and, and, and your sin and that, that, that thing you've been wrestling with and you've asked God a thousand times to take it away and it's still there. Friends, this is the gospel. The gospel is not... Be beautiful like Esther. The gospel is not. Be good. Be a queen. That's not Christianity, do you see? Christianity is... You're worse than you think you are. But God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And he is in the business, friend, of using Esther's for his glory. So hang on. Esther's a mess. She's sold out. God's not done. And His grace, we were singing about it, weren't we, earlier? His grace, His mercy is more. He is a good, good God. Don't you see that this story, the real story, is better? The crushing weight 
of be like Esther, be beautiful, be courageous, be good enough, is, is not what we see here. What we see at the beginning is God choosing, stooping down in His grace and love to forgive and to redeem and to restore a wretch like me. You see? I'm going to end with a quote from a theologian from Eternity, uh, Eternity Bible College. His name kind of makes me chuckle to say. i got no room to talk. My name is Zebulon. His name is Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Not, that's true. Here's what Sprinkle says. The beautiful point of the book of Esther is that despite your sexual failures... Despite your past and present addictions, the cuts on your arm, the slew of abusive guys or girls that you've been with, God desires to use you. Because God delights in using sinful, messed up people to accomplish His will. There is nothing you've done that disqualifies you from being a conduit for God's sovereign rule over the earth. Man, isn't that good? Welcome to Esther. God is going to do something glorious for his kingdom and for the good of his people. Because he did and does use sinners for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the time we've spent today at the beginning of the book of Esther. And Lord, we, we know it's, it's starting off as a wild ride. And we pray, God, that you give us the grace and the discernment to see your goodness in it. God, I pray that we would rejoice in the gospel as we read. Because you're the same God. You work the same way yesterday, today, and forever. And I thank you, God, for the grace that you extended to Esther. As we'll see to Mordecai. I thank you for the salvation, the amazing salvation that you wrought for the people of Israel. And Lord, we pray, God, do it again. Lord, in our day and in our time, make your, make your gospel known in the city of Washington. God, would you shine through us? Would you give us the courage not to conceal our identity as children of the Most High God, but rather to share your goodness, and your grace, wherever we go, Lord. Thank you for the gospel in Esther. Now live it through us, here and now, at Friendship Community Church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.